What we have tried to do this afternoon is to speak about the importance of seeking God. Yes, the word is important, but all too often we have all kinds of purposes for the word. And what God wants to do is to bring us home and to see that we continue to be fed by him and that we really enjoy getting to know God. The second aspect was then that in getting to know God, we would be able to seek his presence and enjoy his presence. The third dimension is to be indwelt by the word and to experience that the word, Jesus Christ, really indwells us. And that as such, the word, as we have it in written form, becomes a part of us. The image that I've put before us this afternoon is like a hotel or a palace. They have then five stories. There are five levels of interpretation in the book of Psalms. There are five books. And what you want to do is to get to know one level and another level and another level and another and another. So that there is a certain sense of a cumulative way where the whole counsel of God comes to us through, among others, the book of Psalms. You can do the same thing in terms of Deuteronomy or Isaiah. Three books the Lord Jesus Christ loved and lived out of. But my concern is that so many times we are in ministry, we are preaching away from going from one text and another, but we are not indwelt by the word. We kind of take a kind of crash course in a book and run from one book to another book and then another book. There's nothing as good as to find that we are able to find an oasis in the word where we enjoy being at that oasis and we return again and again. And then we get to another oasis, we all of a sudden experience there are similarities and there are differences. So we learn then in the word to find patterns. So what I'll be doing now is to talk about Psalm 27 that we have taken a look at this afternoon, but from a different perspective. So first of all, I'm going to use a term that we are not familiar with, and that is that we are a people who need appropriation. What does that mean? It means that here I have a coat. That is my coat, and I don't want anyone to walk off with that coat. But if you were to ask me the question, can I just see if it fits me? I would say fine. And the person might say, I want to use it the whole afternoon. Do you mind if I use it in order to feel it's warm enough in a fairly cool building right now? And I would say, yes, that's fine. It is my property, but you are appropriating it. So it is with God's word. It's his word. But we are privileged to appropriate it. So Paul speaks about that the word should then clothe us, and that we are clothed with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a way that we are able to then enter into a world that's not our usual world, but we want to try and see how it fits. And all of a sudden you discover, this is magnificent and becomes beautiful. So what we want to discover is the beauty of God and the beauty of his word. Calvin then, in this particular quote, he says, I want to be like David. I see him from a great distance, but David is a person who has appealed to me. And I want to experience what David has experienced. So notice then at the end, yet if I have anything in common with David, I have no hesitation in, in comparing myself with him. That is to say, you now enter the world of the Psalms, the world of David. You can enter the world of Isaiah. You can enter the world of Jeremiah. But too many times, the word is distant from us. And the word invites us really to find our home in the word. And so Calvin continues then in yellow. 
these things have been of a great advantage to me, to behold in him, in David, as in a mirror, both the commencement of my calling and the continued course of my function, so that I know the more assuredly that whatever that most illustrious king and prophet suffered was exhibited to me by God as an example for imitation. In other words, there's a model that we find. And all of us need models, particularly today, when young people don't have models. And then to give them the scriptures so that they can model their lives after the scriptures, not just by observing the text, but by living the text. And so what we are encouraging pastors likewise is to exemplify living the text where they then are appropriating the text. And when you listen to pastors like that, whenever they have been in a certain text, you will see the ramifications of it coming over and over again in that they say, this sounds like Psalm 23. It sounds like Psalm 24. It sounds like Psalm 25. And where you then have lived so much in the text that you can see God in that text and having seen God in the text, you want other people likewise to experience the presence of God. So appropriation includes five interpretive stages. First of all, that is what we are familiar with. There is interpretation, where we want to hear the text. We want to listen to the text. The second thing is, and we'll go back over these things, is to encounter God in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's just not a text. It's not the word without the word. That is to say, we have the word written and we can read it, but there's also the word who is the living word. Somewhere or another, we want to see a connection between the written word and the living word of God. Third, then, we begin to see patterns. This afternoon, those of you that were with me, you saw the connection that you find in other texts. And you're beginning to discover then that the psalmists or the authors of scripture, they have a vocabulary, they have imagery, they have a way of communication where one idea is connected with another idea. And all too often, we just look for single things. For example, whenever scripture speaks about creation or God as the creator, it always introduces us not only to the fact that God is the creator, but that he's king. So the language in Genesis chapter 1 doesn't use the language of God being king, but rather God ordains that there are the heavenly bodies that will rule and human beings will rule. And it is the king who then orders the rule. And the third thing that we clearly miss is this. Wherever God is the creator, he is the king. And there is a cathedral where he's being worshipped. In other words, creation is for the worship of God. It is his cathedral. It is his sanctuary. These three things need to be kept together. Similarly, in terms of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the creator of the world. He is king. And now what about the sanctuary? It's him. He is the sanctuary. He goes also into the sanctuary with the Father. In other words, Christ is holy, and he is the one who then worships the Father, and that we can participate in that worship in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we have to learn to do is not to take individual ideas and words, but to see how the ideas and words are connected with each other. In other words, whenever we go to a medical doctor, the doctor is asking us questions. What about this? What about that? What about that? What is he trying to do? To bring these things together and say, I think you have this problem. And that's the same thing that we are doing also in the interpretation of God's word. To see if certain things are coming together. And then we can look for that. So, for example, what is it that we have in Genesis chapter 1 that is missing? You have God as creator, God as king. And there is also the temple, as it were. The whole creation is then ordered. It's beautiful in order. And what is missing? Let me give you an illustration. What do you have at the end of Exodus? Moses 
has made the tabernacle. It is completed. All the work is completed. That sounds like Genesis chapter 2 verse 1. God completed the work that he had made. But what do you find next? God sanctified the Sabbath day. God blessed and, and sanctified the Sabbath day. What do you have in Exodus 40? Everything is consecrated. And what happens then? Moses is then in the tabernacle. And what happens then? All of a sudden, the tabernacle is filled with the glory of the Lord. And Moses has to withdraw. That is what I'm expecting in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Nothing in creation is consecrated. Nothing. Only time. And now, the person who knows something about the rest of the Pentateuch is asking the question, when will it be that creation will be consecrated? Well, there's a test. And Adam and Eve have failed it. So what are we looking for? We are looking for one who comes into God's creation, who is the very reason for the consecration of that creation, but one who's perfect. And that's the message then of the New Testament. That's the one who's perfect has entered into the tabernacle and that everything can now be consecrated. And that is the hope that we have. So by looking at patterns, you are able to see the connection between things in one text and another text. So what do we have? I call it figuration. What is figuration? You see something, as it were, shimmering in the text that says, look at the connection between these points. And all of a sudden, you're seeing the connection. And there's another and another and another. And so in the text that we'll again take a look at this evening, Psalm 24, 27, we see all kinds of connections. But now, by the time that you finish with a text, you have possibly five or ten different sermons. Those of you that were with me this afternoon, you start thinking in terms of the metaphors of light, salvation, and the fortification. God is a helper. You start thinking about the presence of God and all the different images that are being used. And you can keep on and on. God is like a parent. Our parents can forsake us, but God will not forsake us. You have now all kinds of messages that you can proclaim. And notice in four. Now you ask God, help me. I have too much on my plate. What topic shall I develop? What aspect will I develop out of this text? Do you remember what I have said that many times we look at the text as a souvenir? You are finished with the souvenirs. You have been in the text. You have experienced the text. You have appropriated the text. And the text is shaping you. Now the question is, what can I leave out? And you have to leave things out. And so for the sake of the congregation... You want to take those things that are appropriate. Not everything is appropriate. So appropriation is where you are letting the work of God shape you into a man of God. And what we then do is to ask the question, how can this message be helpful to the members of the congregation? So it's a new situation. That means that... Uh, message in your church, Kevin, might not be quite appropriate and that you are looking for a person who is able to give that message that is appropriate. And so it is then that the word of God is relevant, it's applicable. But how do we know it's applicable unless we have set in the word of God and have then been blessed by the word of God? And we are beginning to see connections. And finally, then we can say, thus says the Lord. But all too often we make major things out of minor things. So how can we then stay with the major things? Keep in mind who God is. That is, we want to get to know who God is in Jesus Christ. That we have the triune God 
and that every text helps us to understand more and more aspects of who God is. And that when we are living in the text, we are able then to see the applicability of the text, the relevance of the text. Now, appropriation is not just looking for applications. It is where you live in the text. You just don't you want to use the text, but rather you want to see that the text will shape us. So, first of all, how do we get into the word? Typical thing that we all know, it is a matter of reading scripture, living in scripture, and praying and looking at the tools. And there are many tools that are available. So we have then study Bibles in different versions with commentaries. But look for patterns, observe things, have questions. So, for example, Psalm 24. Uh, Psalm 22, what do we have? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the psalmist speaks about the enemies in terms of they are like wild animals surrounding him. And all of a sudden, he has a sense of newness. There is a new day that is breaking forth. And as he speaks about that new day of God's deliverance, he says, and all who fear the Lord, they will be fed. In other words, God will take care of his people. What do we have in Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not lack. He will prepare a table before my enemies. Are you with me? In other words, the very observation that you have seen two times within Psalm 22, the language of eating, of feeding, Psalm 23 picks it up. What do we have at the end of Psalm 23? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord for like the days. What do you have in Psalm 24? Lord, who may dwell in your house? Who may ascend to your temple? In other words, what we have said is that there is really a development taking place from one Psalm to another. So we are observing details, patterns. Or, in other words, using again that image of the medical doctor. If a medical doctor is not inquisitive, and there are some that are not, the medical doctor may say, you're doing fine. Go home, eat, drink, and enjoy life. But when there's a medical doctor who then touches us on our stomachs, it does it hurt, does it hurt, does it hurt? No, no, no. Okay, that's fine. But you want a person who then is able to just check you out even when you have no complaints. Are you with me? And so it is then, when we look at the text, we see all kinds of things that we should observe as we then are alive and are we, as we are inquiring things. So what happens then, through the diligent study of the word, we are able to see connections between the psalms, the imagery, the syntax. It is just exciting, and I know all of you have been there, of all of a sudden experiencing that one text sounds like another text. And sounds like another text. And you start making then the connections and also observe the differences. Then what you do is to live in the psalm, appropriated psalm, in your particular situation, where you can just, as it were, sit in the psalm as in a hotel room. You check everything out to see how it works. And you get to know a place that you really enjoy being at. Then you are at another place and you make comparisons. Namely, what about that one room over against another room? I don't know if you ever have been in an art hotel, but an art hotel has uh, rooms that all of them are different. All of them have certain forms of art. Uh, there's a hotel in uh, Seoul, South Korea, that's called Art Nouveau, the new art. Uh, and it is just to entice you to go from one room to another room in another, so that you get a holistic experience. That's what I'm talking about. The Word of God wants to come to us in its wholeness. So what we then do is we see that appropriation does not bypass good exegesis, but is in, in addition to good exegesis, where you are able to see how the text is able to maneuver you, manage you, shape you in so many different ways. And you start saying, 
this sex is going to be good for that brother and for that brother and that brother and for me. And all of a sudden you start thinking about all the elements of the text that are so relevant. Now, what you in the end need to do is to begin to see the Psalms. So that each Psalm you can see. If somebody were to say, what about Psalm 67? Oh, 67. No, it has to be that your mind says, oh, 67, I've been there. And I've been there during a particular time. Then you are beginning to see the Psalms and likewise to see God in the Psalms. But what do we do with all that background? To seek God. That is the very first thing that we really should be concerned. Not so much what we have to do, but who God is. God has revealed himself through the word. And through the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, he presents us again with who God really is, the triune God. So we then learn to delight ourselves in the word, and I intentionally use it in an ambiguous way, the word that is written and the word that is alive, and we start seeing the connections in ever-increasing dynamic ways. And that leads then to what in the history of the church has been spoken of as the beatific vision. Think again about what we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, namely, and he tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. That's the purpose of John, that we can read the gospel and see the glory of Jesus Christ again and again and again. So both then, as he is at the wedding feast at Cana, as he is presenting himself to Nicodemus, as he speaks to the woman of Samaria, Jesus is presenting himself as the glorious one. And then you find that the people are responding slowly sometimes. Such as in the case of Thomas at the very end. My Lord and my God. Do you see? And that should again be a revolutionary for us to just think how God is working in so many different ways. Through one incident or another incident. Where we have the vision of who Christ really is. Now, what we have is a patterning, rich patterning in Psalm 27. And so you read here about God who is near, namely God will keep me safe. He will protect me. And then what you have in verses 9 and 10, namely my father and mother may abandon me, but God will not. In other words, God is near. But the trouble is that whenever you have the language of God's nearness, the psalmist always speaks about God's hiddenness. And those two are coming together again and again. And that's a part of the difficulty of the Christian life. Namely, all of us love to talk about God's nearness and how God saves and delivers, hears prayers. But at the same time, you also realize that many times God does not hear our prayers or respond to it the way that we expect. And so what the psalmist is doing is giving us two images of who God is. One who's close, protective, caring, and the other one who seems to be so distant. And so take a look then at the hidden God. Verse 9, don't hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me. Do you see? In other words, this is desperate language. Namely, you have been my helper, but you are so distant now. And then what you often find in the tension between the two, the hiddenness of God and the presence of God, is the openness to instruction. You will hear again as uh, Mike Bulmer will speak about Psalm 119. That's a very tension in Psalm 119. Lord, I want to serve you. I want to listen to you. I will instruct me and I will live by your instruction. Your instruction gives me life. It gives me light. But where is God? What do you have in the very last verse? Psalm 119, verse 176. Lord, seek your servant because he is a lost sheep. For 176 verses, 
He's been saying, seek me, seek me, seek me. And yet there is the distance. Where else do we have that distance? In the case of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father makes it very clear, this is my beloved Son. But what happened at the cross? What? There is a forsaking. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many times we as evangelicals present a God who is so near as if we have never experienced the distance. I find that when we have the distance of God or the dark night of the soul, in a sense God is even closer. Because all of a sudden God breaks through and we experience his presence. Not an answer to the, to the prayers, but we experience his presence. And that is what the psalmist is looking for. So in the face of his confidence in the beginning, there's not any kind of doubt. But nevertheless, there are questions. Where are you, God? Come through. And so notice then in verse 12, right after you said, teach me your way. Don't turn me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. Do you see, this is exactly the history of the church. Our Lord has been with us in the last 2,000 years. And yet we have asked again and again, where are you, Lord? What about then the time of the persecutions by the Romans? What about the persecutions of one part of Christianity of, over against another part of Christianity? Namely Catholics and Protestants in the late Middle Ages and the Reformation period. What about them, what we have experienced in the last century with communism and still is happening in Latin America? What about, what about, what about? God's people have been crying and they have been asking, God, come through. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. And so there is all the time the tension between the God who is hidden and the God who is present. And what we want to do is to see that God comes through. But the psalmist gives us another way. Notice verse 4. In the meantime, look at the beauty of the Lord. The enemies may be ugly, but the psalmist is just overtaken by the beauty of the Lord. And there's one thing that he desires, to get to know God better. So during, as it were, the period of examination, it is a period not just to abandon God, but rather it's a period to get to know God, to get to know the harshness of God, and we begin to see how God is even greater than apparent, much more understanding and responsive to us. The psalmist is looking for the protection of God. He will keep me safe. Now notice, he, will, he doesn't say he will keep me out of trouble, but rather he will keep me safe in trouble. How does it sound like Psalm 23? He prepares a table before me, continue, in the presence of my enemies. You see, that is the thing that most Christians don't understand. That it is when the tension is the greatest, that God is present. And he sees exactly what is happening. And we see that, of course, confirmed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He speaks about victory. Verse 6, my head will be exalted above the enemies. And I will have them shouts of joy as I sacrifice. So the psalmist knows that God is coming through. But he wrestles. And that is something that I would really encourage us to um, encourage people in our churches to wrestle with God. To have questions of God. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? David saying, our Lord saying, and the saints in the history of the church, they've asked the same question. We know Christ will not abandon us. He's promised he will not forsake us or abandon us. But in the meantime, we are so often left alone. And so I find tremendous comfort in the Psalms because they give patterns of expectation. Here, the beauty of the Lord. God will protect. He will be victorious, you see. And so it's only when the tension is bad and we begin to despair where all of a sudden the other elements break through into our lives and we are able to see that God is going to be faithful to us. 
So we have spoken then about the beauty of the Lord. But I want you to see the language that we have in verse 4. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This is the term that you also have in Isaiah. Namely, Isaiah has a vision of God. And so we have here uh, to, let's say, to have a vision of the beauty of the Lord. And what do you have in verse 13? I will see. It's a regular word for seeing. But both of these are expressing then how we can see the goodness of God. I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Now, those of you that were with me this afternoon, you would say, goodness, ah, I know what that is connected to. It sounds like Psalm 23. Surely goodness and faithfulness will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord for length of days. Well, look at these verses. Verse 4. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Do you read it? In other words, this text is an interpretation of Psalm 23, verse 6. And Psalm 23, verse 6 is an interpretation of our text. And there will be many more texts. And that is the exciting thing. So that when you are dwelling in Scripture and you're living in Scripture, you see all the potentiality coming through. So, what do we do with it at the very end? The psalmist says, I'm confident that I will see God in the land of the living. I'll see his goodness. But in the meantime, verse 14, wait, be strong or resilient, wait, do you see? And that is the thing that we have problems with. This you find also in Isaiah. You find it in the New Testament. It is all the time there. In other words, when Paul is writing, he is interpreting the Old Testament. He knows the patterns of the Old Testament. And what we have to learn is to see the continuity between old and new in a two testament Bible. And so, first of all, what do we do? Study the text. However, who has time to go through the text with all the potential commentaries and understand the particular text? We don't have time. There are so many potential interpretations that these commentaries will offer us. So don't just spend all of your time doing the exegetical work and saying, I want to be 100% sure. What happens when you're 100% sure today? Within a week, you say, I missed something. And that is the reality. So what is it that we should be doing? Come back to the source. Who is God? I want to find who God is according to this text. A God who hides himself. A God who reveals himself. A God who is asking us as human beings to learn to walk with him, to seek him. And then to come to the point where you see the patterns. Namely, for example, Matthew chapter 1. You will call his name Jesus because he will then deliver his people, save his people from their sins. As it is written, Isaiah 7 verse 14, Behold, a virgin will conceive and will bear a child and she will call his name Emmanuel. Wait a second. Jesus, Emmanuel, how is that connected? He will save his people from their sins. Who saves people from sins? God alone, precisely. Now, Matthew interprets that. That the Emmanuel is, if I can dramatize it, is not just that God is with us. Because God can be with us in many ways. No, he wants to make it very clear. God is with us. Do you see? That's so when we look at Jesus, it's not just that God is with us, the way that he is with us in many different ways, but rather that God is with us. And he makes a point again at the end. He says, Emmanuel means God is with us. What do we have in Matthew chapter 28? Behold, I will, or lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. Do you see? In other words, all of a sudden he unpacks the Emmanuel far beyond what Isaiah has seen. Do you see? 
And so there is where I just want to encourage you to begin the joyful exploration of Scripture, to get to know who God is in Jesus Christ. And that you will have so much to say. You want to just think about John chapter 1. Christ is the Word. He was with God. He is God. He is the light. He is the life. And John goes on and on and on. How can you speak about that in just one sermon? You need ten sermons to unpack the way that John wants to be understood. And what we then have to do is to recognize that whatever we do through the study of the word doesn't even come close to an understanding of who God is. All of God's word that God has revealed of himself helps us to understand a small aspect of who God is. Because as John speaks about it, the books that could be written about Jesus Christ would not be able to be truly kept because there would be too much to write. And therefore, the scriptures we have received are for us to see an aspect of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And so as we then are going through a text like Psalm 27, there's confidence and lament. There is God's presence and hiddenness. There is confidence and humility. There's worship and witness. The psalmist goes in so many different directions. And each one of those gives us an opportunity to say, what shall I explore this Sunday for this particular sermon? And that, for me, is exciting. Because you will never exhaust that text. You'll come back to that text a year from now, and you'll say, I missed so much. But you have another opportunity, another run at it. So appropriation is not trying to be exact. It's not trying to be scientific. It's not trying to give the final interpretation of the text, because it will never happen. It says that after so many hours wrestling with the text, wrestling with God, looking for the patterns, you say, I know several avenues I can develop this text. For this Sunday... This is the one avenue that I'll develop. And another Sunday, you may take another avenue, depending upon the needs within the congregation. But all this is to say that when we look at the text, not just as a client or a subject that we have to take a look at, but rather as an opportunity to meet the creator of the universe, in the text. That will change us in terms of our relationship. So summarizing it, God's nearness gives confidence where we have vision of God and we are with joy and praise. God's hiddenness is where we experience alienation, where lament comes, where we seek God because we're trying to understand who is this God, where we wait for him and where we are teachable. This is very, very helpful because what we begin to do is to see that we are on a way which is the way of wisdom. So when then Psalms 1 and 2 invite us to the path of wisdom, then we learn wisdom, not something that is a principle, but where God teaches us his wisdom directly and we can appreciate who God is. Now, here are a couple of other suggestions. Look for psalms in each of the five books that relate to this psalm. Psalm 25 has much to do. The psalmist David is saying, Lord, teach me. I've sinned against you, but teach me. Psalms 42 and 43. As a high, uh, as a, uh, and what is the English word? As a deer. Uh, I think it is hind, heart, that's right. As a heart pines then for water, so my heart pines for you, oh my God. And um, beautiful in terms of the sense of alienation. Psalm 84, very similar, but positively, namely, he is hungering and thirsting for God. And he is positive throughout that psalm. Psalm 91, namely, 
to be in the shelter of the Most High. Beautiful language. You will not be afraid of this and that and that and that. You start seeing the similarity between Psalm 27 and then Psalm 91 and other Psalms. Psalms 122 and 143, just as examples. Only to say, slowly you're developing a warehouse of possibilities. So that every time that you enter a song, you start saying, this sounds like, this is like, this is like. And that is exactly where you now are appropriating the scriptures. You see, say to yourself, what is going to be the most appropriate message from this text this Sunday for the congregation in a particular need that we are facing? Now you're getting to be a medical doctor. Are you with me? In other words, it's the diagnosis. It's a prognosis. And you are experienced because you have experienced God's people. You have experienced the needs of God's people. You have likewise experienced your own needs. And you now know that this psalm is useful for so many possibilities. Another psalm is and another psalm is. Just to say briefly, many times people say, go to Psalm 23. As if there's no other psalm. And sure, at a time where a person is passing away, Psalm 23 gives much comfort. But why is it that we go to Psalm 23? Because we don't know Psalm 27. <laughs> right? And so what I'm saying is, let's just get to know these psalms. And then we have a whole arsenal of possibilities as we then minister to God's people. So... Psalm 91 is, of course, a beautiful example. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Notice the personal language. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Do you remember Psalm 27? That God is my light, my salvation, my fortification or stronghold. Whom shall I fear precisely? So he continues, you will not fear. Or even better, don't ever fear the terror of night. And then again in verse 9, if you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. Does anyone know what happens after this? Do you recall? God speaks. And God says, because you have loved me, I will love you. And at the very end, he says, and I will then honor you with long life. God saying, and I will honor you. In other words, you become a guest in the hotel of the Lord. And the Lord then honors those who have found refuge in him. Magnificent. So you have on the one hand, the psalmist speaking. On the other hand, you have then... Uh, the author speaking, then you have God speaking within Psalm 91. It is a feast. So, second, look for Old Testament themes that connect with Psalm 27. What do you have? The Zion theme in, for example, Psalm 46, 48, 84, where God is then a refuge. Think about Martin Luther's song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, you see? So connect, connect, connect. What about God's glory where he revealed himself to Israel, to Moses, and to Isaiah? And then even uh, Jesus says, and Abraham saw my glory. Are you with me? In other words, there, there is a sense of the glory of the Lord is to be revealed rather than concealed. The Emmanuel theme in Isaiah is a very important theme that Matthew elaborates on that. Uh, so now we are getting to connect Old and New Testament. Think about then the Gospel of John, where we see that Christ is the Father's presence, he's the provision, the protection, and he's preparing a home for the children. Namely, how he said, I'm going to prepare a home for you. Uh, that is, again, the protection that God is providing us. You think about then Corinthians, where you have the glory spirit, the suffering with Christ, where those who suffer with Christ see the glory of Christ. You think about the book of Revelation, 
it goes on and on. In other words, we have a two testament Bible. And there are connections between old and new. I encourage you, don't ever say again, in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. You may say it, but immediately, as soon as you say in the Old Testament, say, and in the New Testament, bring them together. So that God's people can see that we have one Bible that is then two separate parts that have come together. Think about what Jesus says in John chapter 17. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. Verse 24. I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. That we see the glory of the Christ like Abraham, like Isaiah. So the intent is not to hide the glory from us, but it gives us a sense of that glory that will sustain us during times of adversity and depression. Incidentally, and that is a free note, you know of the problem of suicide in our age. People are despairing. In effect, I should give another recommendation. Do you know David Brooks? Of PBS, David Brooks. He was he is with the New York Times, but every Friday evening he comes together with Mark Shields to give some kind of a response to the happenings of the week. David Brooks is Jewish in background, but gradually he has been moving much more to think about alternatives. So in the most recent book that just came out, The Second Mountain. He says, America offers us a mountain of success. And then we come to the valley and there's nothing. This is very important for us as preachers to help people to understand the culture in which they are living. And he says, what we need is a second mountain. He doesn't use a language that you and I would use, but there, it is there. He says, what people need is spirituality. What we need is also connections. Are you with me? In other words, this is from common grace. You're familiar with it. Namely, that we can, from the social sciences, learn. The American culture is dying. People are dying. Young people are dying. So what can you say about Generation X? No Z. The new generation. No connections. No ambitions. What an opportunity, my friends. Do you see? So I encourage you, if you have a chance to read Dave Brooks' The Second Mountain, it is a cultural expose that will help you to help God's people to fortify themselves against secularization and at the same time to help young people to see there's another way where the way in which they are going is killing them. Now, let's see. So we look at Jesus Christ as the perfect image of God. None of us can take his place. We are all frail. When people are looking at us, they would say, what a weak pastor we have. What a weak human being we have. And we are weak human beings, right? Aren't we ready to confess that? It's by grace that we have received any strength. But by ourselves, we are weak. David all the time shows himself to be a sinner and at the same time to be justified by God. We are likewise sinners justified by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we find then in Jesus Christ the perfection of God. Now, your privilege is to lead people into the presence of God. Where you are so excited about your recovering who God is in Jesus Christ. Where you every Sunday will not just say, do this or that. But you see, let us see the glory of God. And when we have that, we don't talk about ourselves as a main subject. We don't give legalism. But rather we are at a point of worship. Behold your God. 
Now, when we have that kind of an attitude, lead people to be obedient, namely how petty many times we are. One illustration and then time for questions. My youngest daughter loved little pencils. She would steal from a desk wherever there was a little tiny pencil. It was as if it was gold for her at that time. And we had to tell her, don't take little pencils away from your classmates. For her, it was a treasure. My friends, that's what we do in the presence of our glorious God. We hoard treasures that are no treasures. They're like nothing. And yet, they're mine. This is mine. This is mine. And what we miss is the opportunity to get to know our God better. Okay? With that, I, my song is finished. Any questions, comments? Do you see the pieces coming together? Yeah. Ninety, only of 90. 91 is anonymous. Yeah. But what a powerful introduction to the last book, Moses. We have had David and we have seen the failure of David. What about Moses? Do you know the last song, uh, did I say, of book five? Of book four. But it is then the very first psalm of book four. And the last psalm of book four, Psalm 106, where Moses failed. So who will deliver? David, he has been banished. Moses, he has failed. Only God. So the message of the Psalms is very clear in that regard. Yes? Even when God is distant, his word says, I will never leave you. Exactly. And all things work together for good. That's right. Yes. But even the hard times, even the times when you can't see him, or can't hear him, can't feel him. Right. That is for our good. Exactly. Right. And so according to Psalm 27, what is that good? Anyone? Why is it good for us to wait first to see God, to expect God's goodness in the land of the living? Precisely. In other words, God is faithful and he must come through. But wait for it. Precisely. Great. Someone here. I know it has been a long day. You're welcome to write me in 45 years, but I'm not going to answer. <laughs> Somebody there? Okay. Take it away, Jeff.